Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Desiree, and today's episode is part of a two-part series on carbon dioxide removal. I speak with Robert and Caroline about the different types of carbon dioxide removal, research gaps in this field, the recent report called State of Carbon Dioxide Removal, the role of government support and venture capital financing in developing the market, and supplier and buyer dynamics in the CDR market. This episode gets into the nitty-gritty of various technologies, so I recommend you all educate yourself a bit before you listen to this episode. One excellent resource is the report called State of Carbon Dioxide Removal, linked in the description below, and one could also read Robert's blog, Marginal Carbon, also linked in the description below. Let's dive in. Welcome, Caroline and Robert. It's such a pleasure to have you here and learn more about your expertise. Just to kick the conversation off, could you just firstly describe your paths to date and what has led you over the past couple of years to work on carbon removal? So my background is in the NGO sector. I worked for Oxfam, for example, in the past, communications and policy, climate policy, among among other things, working consumption-based emissions, getting Sweden to adopt a target to reduce emissions from consumption. But I, I think carbon removal for the last like four or five years is something I've been interested in. And three years ago, I wrote a discussion paper that Oxfam published, Removing Carbon Now, that was really the result of not finding the answers to the questions I had myself on sort of what are the considerations that one would need to take if you want to get involved and start purchasing carbon removal or, or supporting the, the field. So that was sort of the starting point for me getting involved in, in the sector and, and trying to cover it from all different angles, having that kind of bird's eye perspective, jumping on to interesting issues that needs to be solved, which in carbon removal since it's such a new field, there's plenty of plenty of issues that we need to work on and then sort of figure out what's the best practice and how can we move this forward in the best way. And I should say, Robert's one of my favorite thought leaders on carbon removal. So we've met before and I reached out to him to ask him some questions about his work. So super glad that you do the work you do. I have a consulting and finance background. I worked as an economic consultant and then for Bain in private equity consulting. And then at the beginning of 2018, I joined a team investing in long horizon disruptive changes at one of the world's largest institutional investors. And something was missing from the thesis, climate change, maybe the longest horizon, most disruptive change of all. And so I was fortunate enough to spend the next four years of my career you know, designing and then helping to implement what a climate positive opportunity focused finance first investment thesis could look like for that team. And then joined the Grantham Foundation at the end of 2021, focusing on early stage investments and grants into neglected climate opportunities. Carbon removal has been a big focus for us for many years. Super interesting backgrounds. And I know I could ask you so many questions about your paths to date, but I want to talk a little bit more about setting the case for investing in durable carbon removal now instead of later. Specifically, I would love to get your expertise and perspectives on why we should be focusing on durable, high quality removal in comparison to temporary removal. Maybe just to jump in first on the question of why do it now, there's two parts to it for me. And, and one is that a lot of the technologies around carbon removal are fairly early stage and will require a lot of capital and a lot of research and a lot of scaling to get to the point where they're going to be impactful at the gigaton scale. 
So if we start now, if we, you know, we hope that that space will be large and mature enough when we really need it in 2050. I think the other, you know, reason now is, you know, people talk a lot about saving the world or stopping climate change. And, you know, for me, those phrases don't really capture climate change as this incremental thing that suffers the risk of tipping points. So having carbon removal as, as a lever is critical because the earlier we act, the easier it is to stop some of the more negative aspects of climate change. Yeah, totally agree with that. And carbon removal is needed in basically any scenario because from from one point of view, you will have these kind of residual emissions that will be very expensive to, to mitigate and to reduce. And then carbon removal can be the, the way to take responsibility for them and, and reach net zero. For example, emissions from, from air travel might be difficult to, to bring down in, in a cheap way. And then carbon removal is also needed if we want to reduce temperatures at some point and, and, and go back in time. But it, it is the net in net zero, and it's going to be very difficult if you look at from a company point of view to reach zero without carbon removal. So it's, it's needed in any any corporate plan and also for countries that have net zero targets, so it would be absolutely needed to, to reach them. Then how much carbon removal is needed is kind of a tricky question, and it's also dependent on sort of how fast emission reductions happen. But in all different scenarios, there, there is gigatons of, of carbon removal. So going from this very, very early stage where it's tens of thousands of tons being removed to billions of tons like is one hell of a journey. And if no one invests in it now, it's definitely not going to happen. And it's definitely not going to be available at, at that scale. Yeah, that's a really critical point. I think you get your head down so much and become so enmeshed in the in the carbon removal space. Perhaps I sometimes forget to to, to make the first point that, that you encapsulated well there, Robert, which is this is absolutely necessary and there's no way we're going to hit any of our climate goals without it. Thank you so much for this explanation on the case for carbon removal. I want to actually take a step back and talk about the differences between temporary and durable carbon removal. And Robert, I know you wrote this interesting article on the differences between the two. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this and also how it relates to procurement. The permanent carbon removal takes C2 away and stores it for thousands of years or, or even longer, which is the same lifetime as it would have had otherwise. Like it, fossil CO2 it has been stored away permanently from the atmosphere. And when you burn that, you're making a, a permanent addition. And there's something called like-for-like like removal. So if, if you have emissions from temporary, from, from the short carbon cycle, so if you have deforestation, for example, or loss of soil carbon, then that is CO2 that returns from the short cycle and to the atmosphere. And it could be a good idea then to offset that emissions with, with temporary or or sort of insecure storage where you return the, the CO2 to the short cycle. But if you have emissions that comes from the long carbon cycle, you're taking fossil CO2 and, and permanently adding that CO2 to the Earth's atmosphere to be, to be neutral or to reach net zero, you would need to permanently remove it. But then there are ways of that you still can sort of look at what would be most cost-effective or how are ways that you can compare sort of more medium-term lived solutions such as biochar or ocean storage where, where CO2 might be stored away for hundreds of years as compared to, to thousands of years. 
And yeah, in that post, I go through different considerations that need to be taken, such as discounting future harm, looking at what happens with, with adaptation. We can go more into details if we want to, but the sort of conclusion from that piece is that long-lived carbon removal, but not permanent, so if hundreds of years, is has a very is, is very valuable and, and could be compared to, to permanent carbon removal, given sort of reasonable assumptions about discounting of future harm. But if it's very short-lived, such as decades, then that carbon removal needs to be replaced continuously to, to have real value. And yeah, the best principles going for the like for like, but that's basically the, the conclusion of that piece. I might make a bit of a devil's advocate argument there and say that there is some value to me in carbon removal that happens on the decadal time scale. Because, I don't know, let's say you are storing carbon in a forest and it might last for 30 or 50 or 70 years. When I look back at the trajectory of clean tech in the last 30 or 50 or 70 years, we now have climate solutions that could not have been imagined of then. And we now have costs, you know, levelized cost of energy for renewable energy that was unimaginable. Then, you know, even thinking about Moore's law. So, you know, for me, thinking about the thread of, of tipping points where, you know, the climate might move into a totally different trajectory, there is potentially some value in buying ourselves 20 or 30 years breathing space. The big concern there is this kind of moral hazard question, therefore, of allowing companies to profit from polluting with carbon dioxide that's going to have an impact for tens of thousands, tens of, thousands of years, and then rewarding them essentially for offsetting for a much smaller cost of that total profit for something that lasts for just decades. Yeah, I don't think it makes sense to offset fossil emissions with solutions that you know are, are temporary. Then you have to replace them. You have to set, create a foundation or a legal framework where you have contracts that are 50 year or 30 year, and then you have a bulletproof mechanism for, for renewing that carbon. Otherwise, all else equal, that will lead to, to higher temperatures in the future. And there are certain sort of concepts that have been thought about, like 10-year accounting for just a few years, when you're incentivizing forest owners to wait a few years with not cutting down their, waited to cut down their forests. And there have been attempts to equalize that to permanent carbon removal. And I think that's an example of a very bad approach where you would just keep that carbon stored away for a very short time, you're mitigating a tiny amount of harm that happens now, but you're not keeping peak temperatures down, you're still going to have high warming at, at peak temperatures. And if you do that instead of, of buying permanent carbon removal, or if you're doing it to be able to emit fossil CO2, then you, you're making things worse. All else equal, it's good to store more in the short term, but not if there's an alternative that you could be choosing instead, basically. That's my, my stand on that. Totally. Tenure accounting is really problematic. This leads us into bigger questions about who should pay for carbon removal. On this note of who should pay for carbon removal, in the past couple of months, we've seen a lot of discussions among venture capitalist companies and, and even the, the U.S. government coming together and, and um, really discussing who should be paying for carbon removal. And the question that comes again and again is, you know, 
why should venture capital financing be needed here and really scaling durable carbon removal? And would I would really love to hear your thoughts, Caroline, as a venture capitalist and big advocate of this sphere. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great use case for venture capital financing because it's in many cases an R&D problem. We started thinking about carbon removal as direct air capture, and there's been several waves of innovation within that space, but we now have solutions in mineralization, enhanced weathering, in ocean removal, and biomass, and using early stage equity, I think helps advance some of those use cases. Grantham, we actually try to go things a stage earlier because as a foundation, we have the flexibility to make philanthropic grants so we can support a researcher while he's working in a lab for several years and then become the first investor when that idea is spun out. And that for us feels very catalytic in helping with, you know, kind of move, helping move ideas through early stages of technical risk to the point where they can be financed through the broader market. I think there's big questions for carbon removal and for the climate take climate tech space in general about whether equity should be used as the primary financing mechanism for things that are very capital intensive. They need to build plants. You know, they need to maybe move a lot of tons of rock around and equity is a very expensive way to do that. But there seems to me to be a core use case for, for using venture capital for these very kind of high tech IP plays where they, companies expect to advance their research. Thanks, Caroline, so much for this explanation. I want to circle back to some of the methodologies that you mentioned that have this possibility for scalability. You mentioned mineralization, you mentioned enhanced weathering, ocean carbon dioxide removal, and also biomass. I would really love to hear both of your perspectives on why each one of these methodologies have so much potential to scale and to reach gigaton carbon dioxide removal. A key point is that we're going to need this portfolio of solutions because any type of method or solution has limitations in terms of the input that it needs. So a lot of direct air capture solutions, most, most of them need renewable energy, which can of course be scaled up, but not maybe as fast as we want. Other solutions are, are using biomass or land, which is, is a scarce resource or waste biomass, which is also gonna be competition around. Ocean solutions can be scaled up only to a point because yeah, you're gonna run into problems with competing with, with wildlife and competing with fisheries and, and sort of, yeah, disrupting the ecosystem too much. The same with mineralization, you might run out of land to to put it in a, in a productive way, or you're gonna have too many mines opening. You don't want that. So I think it's a clear case to have that portfolio because many solutions can be done sustainably at like one or two billion tons or something per year, or maybe some less. But taken together, we, we can cover the needs. And yeah, I think that's the, that's the, the case of me. I to- totally agree with Robert that one of the kind of challenges that is often highlighted for carbon removal is how much electricity we're going to need, given how much electricity we're going to need for everything else in the electrification of the economy and, and the clean energy transition. And we've already seen a couple of ways of, of DAC becoming more energy efficient and using less and less electricity per, con, per ton of carbon removed. I think that's the attraction of some of the other approaches, but as Robert rightly points out, there are limitations on feedstock, there are limitations on 
in the environmental impacts of how you do some downstream things around ocean carbon removal and a broad portfolio of solutions is absolutely required. My hope is that, you know, we're talking about four things here. My hope is that if we meet again in a year's time, we'll be talking about six or eight. So we need a broad portfolio of solutions of different carbon dioxide removal methodologies. Given the fact that you are leaders in this, this nascent industry, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on what are some of the most promising technological solutions and innovations that you've seen, and also would love to hear your thoughts on how we should think about some of the potential hazards and co-benefits of each methodology. Yeah, I'll just say a few words, and I'm interested in Robert's thoughts here as well. For innovations in NAC, we've really seen a kind of proliferation of ideas from everything from electric swing to advanced sorbents. And the first iteration, you know, is this amine-based technology that's, you know, borrowed a lot from point source carbon capture. The biggest challenge with carbon removal, of course, is that carbon is very diffuse in the atmosphere. You know, we're at 420 parts per million. So it requires an enormous amount of energy to concentrate that out of the air and to be able to capture it. CO2 is just a very stable molecule. And we're even seeing now, and there's a company in the Grantham portfolio, very early stage in Europe, that is using synthetic biology to do the first cell-free direct air capture. And so excited to see more and more advances in those space. One of the things I think that gets people really excited about ocean-based carbon removal is that the ocean is already a, a bit of a concentrated source of CO2. It's it's found, you know, in a more concentrated way than it is in the atmosphere. And the hope is that that can save you some costs, essentially, on, on concentrating. A lot of the ways people approach it is around adding alkalinity to the ocean. As carbon dioxide builds up, it creates carbonic acid in the ocean that has negative impacts for wildlife and for the sea environment in general. If you add alkalinity to it, the idea is that the ocean will kind of continue to draw down carbon as well as remedying some of those negative impacts. But there's different approaches too. We we have another company using a photo acid, so a light activated acid, to remove carbon from the water. And a lot of companies are looking at how they can integrate with existing water pumping infrastructure. So, you know, how can you work within the confines of a nuclear power plant or a desalination plant as that water is being pumped around to remove carbon from the system. I think that's an interesting point. I think there's a long tail of carbon removal solutions that might be able to use infrastructure that is available today, such as desalination plants. There's different technologies that can use that for carbon removal. Also using existing paper and pulp plants and heat and power plants that are using NXCO2 to put BEX on, as opposed to building new BEX plants, for example, is going to be delivering a lot of carb removal. So there is a lot of sort of low-hanging fruits. I would say biogas separation is another one where you take CO2 that's today's vented when you create make biogas and instead you collect that. And I think that is also kind of low-tech in a way, some of the solutions, but also aggregator they can take a lot of c2 away so, so i think that's that's exciting and just to add some on on, on the interesting things I, I think it's important to remember that we're so early right like it's solar panels in the 70s or something so we're going to see a lot of new solutions show up and I, I manage this charitable fund, the Milky Way Climate Transformation Fund, that makes pre-purchases of carbon removal, companies donating to the fund, and we support other climate solutions as well. But we just had an open call for proposals and got in 
240 applications, half of them cover removal. And I must say I was very pleasantly surprised because the quality was so high and there were so many interesting ideas. And especially, I think there's a lot of strong back ideas and you see companies that have maybe not a completely different pathway or completely different technology, but they're doing the eye contact or in a quite different way. They, they're using the, um, the regeneration, they, maybe they need, have different heat needs or they can to plug in ways of, of using lower grade heat or yeah, they're, they're smart about ha having only using intermittent energy, et cetera. So you're seeing innovations within the different, the different pathways that are bringing down costs. And I think it's just really encouraging. That's really interesting and exciting. I know that there are companies working in the intersection of fertilizer and permanent carbon dioxide removal. There's also research on CO2 plasma conversion. And I know that you can't specifically talk about one proposal or company that you've seen in that round of applications, but are there any outliers or wild cards in this sphere that gets you extremely excited about the future of carbon dioxide removal and the industry as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's exciting. And sometimes it, it can be hard to find the right people to help vet completely new solutions such as using cold plasma or like things that are kind of niche, but it shows that there are a lot of interesting pathways out there that haven't been fully explored yet. And uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of new companies. I, I wouldn't say uh, one of these very new pathways because I haven't gone deep enough on, on all of them. And the ones that I've gone deep on, I've been, yeah, maybe not so sure <laughs> that it's going to work out, but I still see a lot of potential for, for new pathways that we that there's no company around yet. Maybe just because you mentioned CDR and fertilizer, Desi, there's a category of companies I'm very excited about, and those other ones that I call TUFAs, and that are companies that are doing carbon removal as a byproduct of producing some other saleable products. So we have a company, Travertine, for example, that's producing sulfuric acid alongside removing carbon via mineralization. One of the biggest questions that we've touched on already, who will pay for the CDR market, particularly at the billion ton scale, having a co-product that helps the economics of this, assuming there's a big enough market and it's a valuable byproduct, seems to me to be a hugely powerful lever, and I'm, I'm really excited to see more solutions like that. What do you look for when you want to invest in a new carbon removal methodology? A few things out there to start. One of them is scalability, so the ability to you know, capture hundreds of millions of tons of carbon through this without hitting a hard blocks such as those Robert mentioned earlier around feedstock availability. A second would obviously be cost and energy intensity, which are often pretty closely linked. This figure of $100 a ton as a cost target is thrown a lot around in the carbon removal space. Everybody means different things when they say it. Some people include storage in that, some people don't. Some people think about it as a cost, some people think about it as a price, including a profit margin, but it's a kind of half decent line in the sand for where you think we need to get to. But for Gantham also, you know, we look at having a high quality intellectual property base and a team that has the skills and experience to execute on that. We look at, you know, if, if there's a byproduct, you know, such as the companies I mentioned selling sulfuric acid or nickel or lithium or bicarbonate, you know, is, is the end market going to be big enough and how does that affect the economics? And we look at the 
you know, I don't think we, we don't expect to see in an early stage team, like all the management skills that are going to carry that team through growth. But we, you know, we, we look for the potential to create a sustainable and high growth business plan out of that, because ultimately, although we're you know very interested in the carbon impact, I think companies in this space are going to be successful because they're able to be commercially successful. Great. It's, it's really exciting to see you all excited about some of these new solutions. I want to switch over to more of the scientific considerations of CDR processes. Recently, the State of Carbon Dioxide Removal Report came out, and something that again and again was present in this report is that we need more solid frameworks for MRV monitoring, uh, reporting, and verification. One specific example that piqued my interest was ocean alkalinity enhancement. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the development of scientific consensus on MR and B for some of these natural CDR processes. You know, for me, I think it's maybe not so much of a question of consensus across CDR as it is about the quality of research and establishing parameters for each individual pathway. And that, you know, really significantly varies. We've seen a, a ton of progress in advanced weathering in agricultural applications. So that's, you know, spreading like a, a, a mafic of rock or, or something that reacts with CO2 onto farmland. It has a positive fertilizer effect for the fields, but also removes CDR. I really don't know if we understand enough about all the different parameters, the ecology, the crop, type, crop types, the humidity, the weather, to truly understand how that will play out over time. So it's, it's kind of a, a question of individual pathways for me. Perhaps the, the bigger question for me on MIV is how do we establish independent standards that can you know, create trust essentially within the market? And as a, you know, on the venture side, we see dozens of MRV platforms in every single space, um, some of which have complex business models and they stand to benefit from the carbon removals that they certify. Yeah, I agree. There, in many fields, there is a lack of published literature that gives definitive answers on how this actually works in ocean and enhanced weathering to some extent. I think uh, is there some of the companies have maybe the answers in-house because they've been doing the data and some of them are going to publish and might be peer-reviewed, but Everything like this takes takes years, right? And especially for oceans, I think there's many questions that are left unsolved. Like how much alkalinity can you can you add and on, on one point, for example, before you lose efficiency? Do you need to to spread that alkalinity with, with ships like over a larger area? That's a question I don't think has been been answered fully, for example. So it's it's too early to go out and do MRV, right? Like for, for many solutions for direct air capture that you store underground. Yeah, you can do the MRV. It's going to be quite easy. Even there, we don't have a standard yet. Climeworks has their own protocol methodology, the use of third party to certify it. You know, they might go onto a registry to, to put the tons somewhere public and, and have that standard setter like gold standard or vera certify the their methodology but yeah those they're also moving moving slowly but all these these different things are needed for some solutions you might get it quick so for direct data capture for example for others you need more basic scientific answers and then you have to go through the steps of creating the the methodology and, and the standard and the mrb companies and and then as you you raised caroline the the question of how it should be structured in terms of, yeah, who does it and how do they get paid? That's another question. So it's a little bit of a mess and it's moving slowly, but people are aware of the problem and there's a lot of people 
working on it. Totally. And you raise important questions about the ocean that I, I think apply to some of the other spaces as well. For biomass CDR, what happens if we take this nutrition and you know this alongside the carbon out of the system and store it somewhere permanently? So there's a lot of questions still to be answered. Yeah, I mean, lots of questions still need to be answered. And that's something else that the state of carbon removal report that just came out mentioned is that there are tons of research gaps in a variety of, of different areas in CDR, one of which being regional CDR research. And so the, the question to you both is, what do you potentially recommend to scientists working at universities to close this gap in regional CDR research, but also how can these researchers add to the literature in some of the more novel CDR areas like direct air capture and ocean alkalinity enhancement or ocean carbon dioxide removal? I love this question because part of our thesis in, at Grantham, particularly in the grants commercialization program, is that there are thousands of amazing ideas that fly under the radar and don't get the funding they need because they're at, you know, not at a brand name university or not at a university with a history of attracting funding for that sort of space. I would love to hear Robert's thoughts on it uh, as the author of the report. I like the regional thing that you, you mentioned here because it's going to differ between geographies. Sweden has lots of paper and pulp plants. We can do BECs, 50 million tons of bionic seeds that can be captured without building any new plants. Japan has lots of rocks. Other places have, have great coasts for doing enhanced weathering. The US has lots of, of storage opportunities for for supercritical CO2. It's going to look different for, for different countries. Like Spain has some olivine and, and Germany has basalt and Norway has olivine. And tropical countries are better at doing enhanced weathering, but also better at reforestation. So you would, would like to have every country or region should definitely look into what makes most sense for them when it comes to reaching their own net zero target or creating a industry, a CDR industry, that can sell carbon removal to other countries or to companies in, in other countries. And they will have different answers and they will have use different technologies in different places, definitely. It's probably worth mentioning the influence of policy at this point, because obviously the US passed the Inflation Reduction Act last year that contains significant policy incentives and support for carbon removal. Building on the existing 45Q, I think up to is it $175 for direct air capture. And I think that's, we're starting to see the EU respond to some of the provisions around climate tech. You know, it's not really clear to me where they're going to land on carbon removal and direct air capture. But that's also creating a, a kind of distorting effects in some ways. There are going to be some countries, as Robert rightly points out, that are through you know, cost positioning or their grids or their natural resources are exceptionally well positioned to do one sort of CDR or another. If I were an entrepreneur starting out today, I'd be hard pressed to make the case why I should start in one of those companies and not in America, which has, as I said, significant policy support and this vibrant venture capital market. What are other research gaps that you find need to be investigated or more funding needs to be put into beyond the ones that we already talked about? I tend to think about just different types of gaps. So there's certain solutions that like we know it works. We just need to research it more to for it to become more efficient and cheaper. And then there's others that we think we know that it works. We just need to prove it. 
And then there is a third set of solutions where it might work, but it's like a coin toss. We definitely need to investigate if, if this is a or not. And yeah, I think direct ad capture is in the first bucket. Enhanced rock weathering is probably in the second. And yeah, some ocean solutions might be in the third where there is just more, more question marks and I would say soil carbon in the form of regenerative agriculture as well. So yeah, those types of different needs are, are all, over, all over the place, but yeah, yeah, I think it's good to differentiate them in a way. Totally agree with that. And then I'd add a non-scientific area of research, which is the demand side. How CDR markets operate at scale is a systemic risk for every solution, no matter how scientifically brilliant it is. I know very smart people are working on this problem, problem on them, but I would love to see that space and that thinking move even faster for carbon removal. Caroline, I think you bring up a really important point about the government's role in developing nascent market like carbon dioxide removal. I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on how you see consensus building among governments around the world on developing carbon dioxide removal methodologies and development plans in the next couple of years. We've recently seen Germany come out in the recent weeks and develop plans for carbon dioxide storage. And so, yeah, would love to hear your thoughts on how you see this developing over the next couple of years. I don't know if we have global political consensus on anything, but I am, I've been cheered to see some bipartisan support in certain countries for carbon removal. And I think it's because it encapsulates a range of perspectives on the energy transition. We can't forget, I mean, Robert's rightly pointed out how early we are in the CDR space, but we can't forget the magnitude of what we're trying to do here in the energy transition. Humans have relied upon combustion as a source of energy since the invention of fire. We've relied on fossil fuels since the Industrial Revolution. And, and many of the companies today that profit from fossil fuels have been around for you know, 100 to 150 years in some form or another. And we are trying to completely overturn that in every industry, in every country in the world in a matter of decades. So, you know, I think for, for people who are maybe extremely optimistic or a little more skeptical about our ability to do that in that time frame. CDR offers a huge promise around how we can keep to, you know, some forms of climate. Goal. And there is some consensus in the agreements like, that CDR is needed to reach global net zero and countries are starting to, to implement it already. And it's not, there's no fighting on a global level if we need CDR or not, or if it's permissible. And then each country will work to yeah, do their own projects and sort of in their own national accounting, what is counted towards their net zero target, et cetera. And that will differ a bit in, in different countries, but there is a lot of coordination issues also needed to, to be solved on, on a global level. But so far, I think we're not seeing a lot of opposition against the core idea. Then the devil is going to be in detail, of course. And if you start doing billions of tons of carbon wool, you're going to have some opponents to that as well, because you, anything you do in the physical world and CDR is very, very physical, it has disadvantages and side effects and you're going to, yeah, move things around and take electricity and create mines and put things where they didn't used to be. So that is also going to, to put up diff difficult questions and conflicts of interest that needs to be solved. I want to briefly switch gears and talk about how companies can step in and really support the development of this nascent market. And so, Robert, you're the founder of CDR.FYI, 
And I'd love to learn a little bit more about your work there and some of the findings that you have on the composition of buyers and suppliers. Yeah, CDR FYI is a website that tracks all the known transactions of durable car removal. So it's Kevin Niparko and me that runs it as a, as a side project. And what we can see is it, the interest is growing in car removal. More purchases are coming online. More suppliers are selling their first ton. So the growth is in the hundreds of percent per year, but from extremely low levels. So I'm a little bit concerned, especially about the number of big buyers. And here talking about big, I mean over a thousand tons, which is tiny. <laughs> but in, in this in this context, over a thousand tons per year is big. There's just 16 companies that bought over a thousand tons last year. And there's hundreds of companies that do cover removal. So there's many, many more carbon removing companies than there are big buyers of them, which is a bit concerning. And there's also more marketplaces than there are there are buyers basically or big buyers. So we definitely need to have an injection of buyers that starts to make these pre-purchases in a similar way as Stripe, Shopify, Microsoft, Klarna, and Milky Wire that I work with, and, and sort of dare to do it at an early stage. But I think they're held back by by a number of factors, being that it's very early, they don't have the MRV, there's no incentives, it's very expensive, etc. So there's a lot of things to solve. But yeah, I'm a little bit scared that we're going to... It's not going to ramp up fast enough. We often talk about the carbon removal market as being supply constrained. And if you talk to folks working in procurement, you know, they're really excited to look for these high quality solutions. But actually, there's a, a pretty hard cap on, on demand right now. And it's a big cap. But it was great to see Frontier was announced just in the last year. And Milky Wire has been doing amazing work. But you named a couple of the factors around why more corporates aren't entering the space. And to that, I would also add education and sophistication. It's hard, as I'm sure you know, Robert, to try and diligence carbon removal solutions from scratch and to build a corporate strategy around that. And I would love to see more corporates engage and more efforts being built around bringing people into the fold and building up procurement consortia. Great. So this leads me to my next question. How can we potentially persuade these companies to buy durable carbon removal? I mean, obviously education, as you mentioned, is step one. And sophistication is another huge part of it. But going beyond these two parts, what are your thoughts and how we can interest more companies in buying durable carbon removal? I think policy spur is, is such an important lever here. And in the absence of policy spur, demand from consumers is probably one of the biggest things that companies are reacting to. And institutions such as the SPTI, companies have huge respect for a science-based target initiative, especially those that have SPT targets. And if it's mandated from institutions like that and the UNFCCC's Race to Zero campaign and the ISO, International Standards Organizations, etc., which have all talked about the need for permanent carbon removal, but the more hard recommendations that is that you need to start supporting car removal now and not later. So there's this net zero asset alliance owned, I forgot the exact name, that talked about emission reductions should be in the focus up until 2030 and companies shouldn't use car removal. And it sort of came out a little bit in the wrong way, I think. We had an open letter with Puro this week sort of addressing that. 
it's absolutely so that emission reductions should be first and forefront. And I also think it's a very bad idea to try to reach net zero now or before 2030. Like the, you won't have that supply to, to meet that in that short time frame. It's also going to be very expensive and you have a lot of emission reductions to do. But at the same time, if you need carbon removal in the future to reach your net zero target, you have to start spending on carbon removal today, else it's not going to be available. So I think we need to have to drive home that point that if there's no buyers now, this sector is either going to die or not grow. And then those tons that they need at 2040 or 2050 to reach a net zero target is just not going to be anywhere to be found. So I think that's the sort of the key thing that we need to hammer down. What would be the best corporate profile to start supporting or purchasing carbon dioxide removal right now? Wrote a paper with Eli Mitchell Larson at Carbon Gap about this, bridging the ambition gap, looking at who could pay for carbon removal and, and seeing that we have lots of companies that have relatively low emissions, but high profits. So they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars per ton that they emit. And those companies could reasonably be asked to take the full responsibility for their emissions and pay use an internal high internal carbon fee. Take, they can pay hundreds of dollars per ton they emit and they can use that to, to fund high quality carbon removal. Whereas the big emitters, have low profits per, per ton they emit, and they also have huge needs internally to use that money to reduce their own emissions. Whereas software companies or in insurance or finance, et cetera, have more limited abilities or needs to use money to reduce their own emissions. They might fly less or you know, shift around the procurement of energy. It's not very cost intensive things. So they can use their money more towards external things. So the ideal buyer of carbon removal, I think is someone has relatively low emissions, but high profits. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I found that such a fascinating piece of research, the idea that the biggest emitters may not even make $100 of profit per tonne of carbon emitted. I, I think we've seen in other industries that as you move down the value chain closer to the consumer, there's increasing pressure on companies to address pollution issues and companies that are, are really far removed from the consumer, mining companies, for example, have historically escaped, escaped a lot of public pressure and societal pressure on those questions. So. I expect there may be a similar dynamic with carbon removal, and I hope that supports what Robert uh, has just outlined. I want to ask about something that we just briefly touched on, specifically the kind of barriers in buying carbon removal. So ex-post, offtake, and pre-purchase agreements, and how can we potentially get around some of these challenges and barriers that are currently in the market right now? There are a lot of issues that come into how to finance it in the best way. So when you're making a pre-purchase, you're paying upfront, you're giving the, the carbon removal company cash now, which saves them the trouble to get go to the bank, which the bank is probably not going to lend them money anyway, because this is so new and weird. And if you don't have agreements for, for a long time, you're not going to get the funds. So pre-purchases are really key in, in, in getting new companies and new technologies to test your idea. Offtake agreement is, 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 is something that's necessary to get a bank loan. So you promise to buy for every year, for 10 years, but you pay at delivery. So this sort of unlocks the, the possibility to get the finance. But 
hard to get companies to make offtake agreements for many, many years. They might make an offtake agreement for one year. So we do have a kind of a project finance problem, I would say. There's things like streaming agreements that with coming with inspiration from the gold and the mineral world where, where you can have the financer gets a cut, like 1% of all sales of removals for like, 10 years or something. And then the company gets cash today. So it's like a mix between a loan and, and equity. So we do, we're seeing some innovation, but it's going to be tricky to get this kind of really big money into big build these big facilities, I think. So a lot of barriers to be solved in financing. Maybe it's worth saying for any audience members that aren't super deep on carbon financing that you know a lot of the advanced market commitment structure and advanced purchases that Robert has outlined have, have kind of been borrowed from the healthcare industry and vaccine development. The space is starting to think about innovative financing mechanisms for how can we help support the growth of technologies that may still be decades away from producing anything at scale. I hope that we continue to do that. If we're speaking about buying durable carbon removal, we also have to mention ensuring trust in the procurement process. And Robert, you wrote this very interesting and applicable article on KEDA and what they're building in the carbon dioxide removal insurance space. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can continue developing trust in the durable carbon removal buying process via insurance and what you hope to see in the market. Yeah, KEDA brings an interesting innovation here where they essentially insure pre-purchases. So most companies might not be very comfortable with making a pre-purchase because you're paying now and you're taking all the project risk. And if this new company that you're buying from goes bust, you don't really get anything. Some these early buyers that we already talked about are essentially fine with that because you're doing this to support the entire sector and, and kickstart new solutions, not really to get those few tons. But many companies still sort of feel that they need to get what they paid for, et cetera. So if they then can get insurance, if these companies that they buy pre-purchase from goes bust, they will get the tons from someone else or to get their money back. That can potentially unlock more more companies to, to dare to do that. So I think that's an important innovation that, that can help. And then insurance, the insurance sector as a whole has a lot of other things they can do as well in, in, in carbon removal, such as you know insuring the actual projects or even insuring permanence, et cetera. We already talked about why we should invest in carbon removal now, but the argument that a lot of people are making is that these oil and gas companies can use carbon dioxide removal methodologies to continue with their business as usual. And there are a lot of important implications for moral hazard. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. We are not going to reach Paris commitments, 1.5 degrees, even I think a two degree pathway without carbon removal. And there are many reasons why this is so. Just to give you an example, my parents back home in England have just replaced their gas boiler, despite my pleas to get them to invest in a ground source heat pump. That gas boiler will, if the old one was anything to go by, probably be around for 30 years. It's now 2023 it's probably still going to be there in 2050, <laughs> but pending, pending a big renovation. So a lot of that I mean, is just kind of baked in and, and we're not on the right path to achieve things that we need to achieve for the climate without carbon removal. And I say that because I think it's really important for thinking about moral hazards because it's not, a, 
when we think about questions of you know giving fossil fuel producers a license to pollute we are not supporting their ability to do that by investing in durable carbon removal technologies they will do that anyway we've very clearly seen that over the last few decades if we're giving them an additional cover now it's only you know to my mind it's it's, it's helping move some of those investment funds into these new technologies and some of the biggest fossil fuels that you know some of the big majors out there are, are very active investors in this space as well so i, th- I think that's the point that's, that's kind of worth emphasizing because it's something I, I worry about a lot in my work you know i don't want to be even cover further pollution but ultimately at the end of the day i think it's going to happen with or without the cdr market the other question around moral hazard that we touched on already is this kind of mismatch between in timing of assets and liabilities you know you get companies to pay for an offset that might last for decades or 150 years in exchange for polluting for something that's going to last for 10,000 years. And of course, they wouldn't do that if they didn't make much more money from the polluting action in the first place. Robert's outlined some of the kind of market mechanisms that are being developed to address that. You know, Tanya accounting is, is, I think, a pretty flawed example. I think the space is evolving very rapidly and the public debate is evolving very rapidly you've probably seen the articles in the guardian critiquing vera and others for their use of proxies and their analysis around counterfactual situations for forestry offsets even more of those conversations need to be had for carbon removals they're being had now but i don't expect to see like a settled debate on this you know perhaps even in the next decade what are some of your hopes in scaling carbon dioxide removal technologies in the next couple of years? And should we even be confident in these technologies to be ready and scalable in time before we reach another major tipping point? I think we should be confident in these technologies' potential to live it. I, I wish I could give you a confident and cheerful answer here. But I can't. And partly that's because of your use of the words in time. In time for what? Climate change isn't this cliff that we're inexorably heading toward. It's a slippery slope with with tipping points, perhaps it's cliffs stacked along the way. When I think, you know, and I gave that example of of some of the, the contributions to greenhouse gas emissions that are already kind of locked into our society. When I think about how that's going to play out over the coming decades, unfortunately, I think that the defining period of my life is is going to be influenced by climate change. I was born and raised in England and moved out to Canada to the Rocky Mountains several years ago. And it's a place that I love like nowhere else. It is so meaningful to me. In my lifetime, I will see every glacier in this valley melt and with unimaginable impacts for the watershed, the environment as we enjoy it as you know, outdoor recreationists, downstream agricultural industries. And I, you know, my hope for climate change is in the latter half of this century, we're going to be able to avoid some of the biggest and most catastrophic impacts and gather world climate climate back onto a stable course. But for me, there is no in time. I'm curious to hear recommendations or advice for people who are thinking of working in climate, specifically in the CDR ecosystem. And maybe you can tailor this advice for some researchers in the sphere who are potentially thinking about spinning out their research into a company. Do you have any advice that you recommend to these individuals? Yes, join us. I think we're seeing that happen already, lots of people joining the climate tech space, but I alluded to already, this is one of the greatest challenges that humanity has ever seen, and we're trying to do it on a frankly quite unreasonable timescale. So the more talent that we can encourage into this space, 
the more capital, the more policy support, the more social and political and public support, the better. Focus on bringing down costs, <laughs> find a really cheap, cheap way. Don't feel happy that your solution is just going to cost $250 because you've seen that some companies sold their tons for $2,000, so $250 must be great. Like, that's not the case. There's no market for car removal at hundreds of dollars, I think. If it's going to scale up high, it needs to be cheap. So either you have to use resources that are abundant or use very little resources or use very little energy in general or would be very smart about it. But I see we're probably going to see some other innovations. Like people are starting small now and there's limitations to that. In the future, we might see purposely built nuclear power plants that just service direct air capture and you use the, the waste heat to regenerate the CO2. That could potentially look pretty cheap if, if you have that kind of integration and it could be remote, just on top of storage. Things like that, I think, will be needed. And, and when it gets industrial, you'll, you'll find ways to, to bring down costs as well. So I would start thinking about that. Don't think small, think really, really big. Obviously, there might be many people out there, individual citizens, that want to support this market in some way, but they don't have you know, the millions to invest in the development of certain technologies, like the US government or, or certain companies. But I think this is a really interesting question to pose because I know of many people who want to support this market, but they might not just know how to, to do so. So what's your advice for these individuals in how they can help support the development of the nascent carbon dioxide removal market? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are teams out there that are trying to aggregate donations and finances for individuals toward making advanced market pre-purchases or, or supporting the carbon removal market in some non-dilutive way. That may prove to be a really important lever. I actually think for the individual, making your political voice heard is probably the most powerful thing that you can do. Making it clear to your local and level representatives that you think carbon dioxide removal is going to be needed on the path to 1.5 degrees or, or whatever kind of pathway you feel is still reasonable and achievable. Not being a NIMBY and, and you know, as Robert says, as more industrialization as carbon removal is, is being rolled out, you know, supporting that growth. And one of the biggest political questions, I think, for many clean tech, well, for the whole energy transition in general is, is really about permitting. We're going to need huge mass scale carbon removal facilities we're also just going to need like a lot more electricity transmission in many ways trying to get those projects greenlit even when the capital and the technology is already there has proved to be quite difficult in many developed markets having public support for permitting reform at the local level is going to be a really important thing. citizens can also buy car removal there's not that many pathways to do so but you can definitely find it Climeworks has a subscription fee thing that on their website there are companies that, that you can uh, buy cover removal directly from. You can make donations as well to yeah things like the fund I work with, etc. Because then you you're giving the same kind of support as companies, and you're helping incentivize it. So I think that's that's something. And also yeah, give political support to those that advocate for it. But currently, it's not a big 
it's not a it's a bipartisan issue in most countries i think so it's not it's not a huge contentious thing so being a being a buyer i think it's it can be really helpful at this early stage there is there was actually a proposed bill for the new york state senate last year and i don't know how much progress it's actually made but the question was around whether or not the state should procure carbon removal and i'd love to see more states and local level kind of municipal procurement and i'd love to see voters support that and that concludes our episode on carbon dioxide removal. I just wanted to say thank you, thank you so much, Caroline and Robert, for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm sure everyone who listens to this episode is and will be super thankful for your insights. On the other hand, if you have any suggestions on ways to improve this episode, please drop me a note on the email um, in the description. Until next time.